You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 154 is Chris Connolly. He's a singer-songwriter who started in the Scottish electronic dance group Finitribe in the early 80s, but after a few years moved to Chicago, where he had stints in Ministry, in The Revolting Cox, in Pigface, Murder, Inc., etc. in the late 80s, early 90s. You're right now listening to Stowaway from his solo debut, Whiplash Boychild, from 1991. He has since released something like 23 solo albums, along with various side projects, reunions with some of those old groups, Today we're going to talk about A Phantom Marriage from his new album, The Birthday Poems, featuring Monica Queen, then look to a recent solo album, Bloodhounds, 2018. We'll talk about the title track from that, and then go all the way back to D Testimony by Finitribe from the 1986 Let the Tribe Grow EP. And we'll conclude by listening to God Gets Religion by Cocksure from their Operation Cocksure 2020 album. That's one of his side projects that he's released seven albums with. For more, see chrisconnolly.com and thebirthdaypoems.com. For more about this podcast, visit nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. Make sure you're subscribed directly to the Nakedly Examined Music feed, and we'd love if you'd leave a nice review for the podcast. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic, or now directly through the Apple Podcasts app. So I will have played a little bit of Stowaway from Whiplash Boychild, your first solo album, 1991. After kind of trying to wring my hands a little bit of like, what is the most famous thing you were involved with originally? Because between Ministry and Revolting Cox, unfortunately, I didn't get around to reading your book where you give the chronology. Can we, in a very short way, talk about this 80s into your very long, lengthy solo career here? Yeah, well, I moved from Edinburgh to Chicago in 1988. and. I kind of came with, you know, there was a band ready and waiting for me. And there was already an audience for the revolting cocks and for ministry. I just sort of landed. (laughs) Where am I? (laughs) At that time, neither project was huge or anything like that. It was certainly bigger than the Finney tribe, the band I'd left to come to America for. But it wasn't until the Ministry Land of Rape and Honey album came out. And then there was a a live Revolting Cox album, which came out that helped establish the whole idea. I wouldn't say establish us, but it's us is so broad fetching. It put us on the map. All the stuff within about three years between that and Pig Face and other things you were doing. Well, it was like between 1988 through 1991 is when the period where I was most prolific in that situation, doing these collaborations, and it was all quite new, and we were playing with each other and figuring out what we want to do. We're all still quite young. And so I got the impression that on a lot of that, you were sort of the replacement singer that came in after, you know, ministry was already established, for instance, with occasional, but you were also doing keyboards on live stuff or I see you credited with the occasional guitar in the studio I didn't play any instruments but I was there to help with lyrics and help with singing when I first joined Al really emphatically didn't want to sing anymore but it kind of didn't make sense he was good at it and he looked great as a front man and so he stuck with it but threw some things my way in the studio he needed help writing lyrics and then I would end up tracking the vocals just so there was an idea of how I felt the placement should be. And we'd either work with that 
keep my vocal and he'd add to it or just keep my vocal, whatever. Live, yeah, I played keyboards and sang. I mean, I needed something else to do because we split up vocals so much. A lot of keyboards had to be played and it wasn't difficult. It was samples. I didn't have to be uh, Rick Wakeman or anything like that. It was just going, doing, you know, it was not hard. <laughs> and then Revolting Cox was more or less a spinoff band of that. Was that more democratic? Neither were democratic or not democratic. I mean, you had Al, who was completely bananas. And then there was Bill Rieflin and Paul Barker, who were level-headed and kept it together. And everyone else sort of fell in between. And it was never a question of democracy or anything like that. We just did what we did by the skin of our teeth and sort of got away with it. You know, it was almost like raiding Costco in the middle of the night. Like, how much can we get away with here with the record company? <laughs> okay, so then this first launching the solo career, was that sort of a reemergence that you'd been storing up these songs for a while that you weren't able necessarily to do in the group setting? No, I hadn't ever really tried that before. Not since I was a kid in my bedroom, like maybe seven or eight years prior to that. Before the Finney Tribe started, I was experimenting in my room. But we had a really, really attentive record company in Wax Tracks who were very keen for us to do different things. And so if you went to Wax Tracks and said, you know, I'd really like to do this record with this person, they'd generally say, yeah, that's a great idea. Go ahead and do it. And I went to them with the idea of doing a solo album and they were really happy about it. And liked what they got. Moving to Chicago, it was very empowering in that suddenly people in Scotland, it was cutthroat, the Edinburgh music scene. A lot of the bands just didn't like each other and couldn't wait for you to fail. It's a very British thing. What's it, that Morrissey song, we hate it when our friends are successful, you know? It's so true in Britain. In Chicago, it wasn't like that. People were really happy for you to play. They were happy to play with you. They were happy to support you in what you were doing. There were more places to play as well. It wasn't such a, a sort of iron wall of no. <laughs> so then even this first solo album's got more of a kind of Bauhaus band feel, whereas then pretty close after that, it became very strong lyrics over strummed acoustic guitar, which is something that even is coming up right to today, which of course as like, oh, the Ministry Revolting Cox guy is doing basically folk music. I mean, yes, it's more abrasive. It's clangier. Where did that even come from? There was life before the Revolting Cox, <laughs> you know, and I grew up in a time, the music I grew up with, you know, what did I grow up with? I mean, formative years before punk even, it was Bowie and it was Steve Harley and Cogney Rebel. It was Mark Bolan. It was Alice Cooper, all who had their dynamics. And I was a fan of songwriting. Punk came along and suddenly made that kind of aesthetic available to everybody, no matter what level, skill level of playing you were at. And it wasn't long. I mean, you know, you've probably read these books yourself. I mean, it's interesting to read books like about Joy Division, where when they got together, they were just figuring out where they could put their fingers and how it would sound good. And that's what the Finney tribe did. So anything I've done in my career has been all about moving towards writing better songs, whether they be abrasive walls of noise or whether they be more melodic. I'm always working towards that. And songwriters, uh, writers in general are curious and they want to keep moving forward. The ministry 
format, I got tired of it after a while. It also didn't do my health any good as well. And I had to stop doing that. I wanted to move on musically in a certain direction. Not that ministry weren't moving forward. I didn't just didn't want to go that way forward. I wanted to go that way forward. And so increasingly, I won't say smooth arrangements, but non-industrial arrangements, very focused on lyrics with narrative in them. Mm -hmm. This is not Mark Bolin. This is closer to Dylan or this is all prelude to we're going to talk about A Phantom Marriage, the track you chose from The Birthday Poems 2021, the brand new thing, which you even refer to it as it has a libretto. Do you want to sort of introduce that project and tell the folks what they're about to hear here? This was, I guess, the first thing I've ever written musically that had a storyline, a trajectory. And there were definite things I was writing about before it's always been impressionistic, whether I've been writing politically or artistically or whatever. It's always been impressionistic and it's always come from here. So the words are mine, but I had a theme and that was new for me. And I really enjoyed it a lot. It made me do things with my word writing that I normally wouldn't allow. And I liked the idea that I had to work within a certain framework to express what I was doing. So the album has 18 pieces on it, has a beginning, middle and end. I wanted to make it coherent that if you read the lyrics and read along, it moves in time. And I will refer folks to thebirthdaypoems.com, which has a nice, succinct layout of here's the plot, here's what this is based around. But roughly it is two, sometimes three poets, Stella Cartwright and George McKay Brown, and their ongoing relationship. And this one that you sent, A Phantom Marriage, is sort of from the middle of the album. You said this was a particularly pivotal piece. Can we get a very a short description before we actually play it? Yeah, at some point during George Mackay Brown and Stella Cartwright's relationship, George proposed to her, but the marriage never happened. It was a phantom marriage. We never really understand what happened, but Stella, as you can tell in the song, was understanding of this and remained loyal to him as a friend, a very close friend. Supposed to be 
This tortured love is a question mark And I find it hard to breathe Ah, but you did no finger pointing She just gently took my hand And she asked, is something wrong with the prospect? Just too daunting I'll be your lover I'll be your grace, George Just lead me to your land
All right, so a very smooth track. A general question about putting the libretto together. So these were poets, and some of the tracks, not this one, are just people reading poetry. Is this their poetry that you set? And then this one song in particular is you interpreting the narrative of what happened? All the poetry is mine. Oh, okay. I wrote it all. Just a side note, beginning a project like this, you sort of set off... Maybe it's just me, but every time I do something like this and try to get someone involved who maybe has permission to grant me license to use the poetry, there's so much red tape involved. There's so much bureaucracy, and I don't work like that. I'm not a patient person when it comes to my records. I just burrow down and do them. So rather than try to get the rights to poetry, I decided to write it myself. Not even in the style of, but maybe in the era of George Mackay Brown and Stan Green, people like that. I was trying to evoke a feeling, evoke a feeling of people being out in a bar and your entertainment is someone reading from their poetry. That appeals to me greatly. (laughs) So I tried to bring that together. And you said you had picked this one in particular because this featured you and Monica Queen, the featured vocalist throughout this album prominently, whereas a lot of them are sort of handing off here and there. So you were writing a lot of these from, including part of this, from the female point of view. I mean, it it seems like it's just part and parcel. You're writing from a character either way that you're going, whether you're going to sing it or not. What was the extra? Was there an extra layer? Say, for instance, the melodies in particular that she was coming up with. Did you have those all down or that's fill this space? This is the kind of rhythm. Do what you want with it. Some of it sounds, well, she's down, sounds a little bluesy, like she's improvising. Well, that's the kind of singer she is. And that's one of the many reasons I chose Monica to do it. Chose, I asked her to do it. I didn't know her, but I could tell from her records that her voice went there. I would sing the songs and send her the whole vocal with her vocals sung and say, you know, this is where you would sing. Do what you want with it. And she did. And it was perfect every single time. But, you know, like I've said in many interviews before, Miles Davis chose the musicians on Bitches Brew for a reason. He wrote it, but he wanted them to bring to the table what they did best. And that's when I work with people, that's what I do. So Monica was just a, it was such an easy choice. One of the hard things I did have was writing the part of a female. I had to think really hard about that because I'm not a female. I didn't want it to be some man's idea of what the female would be. Fortunately, the George Mackay Brown biography was written by a female called Maggie Ferguson. And I also befriended a woman, a poet from Glasgow called Maggie Gibson, who wrote the sleeve notes for the album, who's also a poet. And writing to them, I understand the sensitivity I had to use in approaching this, because I'm not that. There's only so much empathy I can have for a female character. Well, at least you didn't sing the whole thing in a, in a high. <laughs> there could have been more literal. I, I guess we, the demo version could float out there at some point. Or do you, I assume you just sang in your octave. And <laughs> yeah, I just did. I just did it in my voice. Like, did she follow your lead on, okay, this part is talk. This is more talk sung. This is full on singing. Pretty much. I mean, I there was also the spoken word she did. I just sent her the words and she did what she wanted. But I think that she's one of these intuitive musicians where I didn't have to be there. She was in Glasgow. 
And you can tell by the dynamic of the music where one would go. And on understanding the story as well, like my father took me everywhere and the poet herself. These are sad songs, to put it simply. And, and she, she really brought that emotion to the table in a way that I would not have been able to do. So in this one in particular, the reverbed reverse George's at the end, was that kind of a just a, where did that come in the process? I assume kind of a late as a studio trick, but. Well, she did the George's and then Chris Bruce, the producer, did that with them. Again, working intuitively, all three of us in different parts of the world. Say a little more about the mixing, because for instance, at the end where, you know, everything is dropping out except uh, her speaking that line and you've got just this electric piano riff, which sort of has a Twilight Zone feel, kind of like that, you know, when it's in isolation. Right. I wouldn't think that, you know, just on top of things, but were those decisions made in the mixing process in terms of what's going to be most dramatic to have everything go away, for instance? What I would do is I would perform and record the songs here in my basement, and I would send them to Chris, who would work on them a little bit, and then Monica would do her part, and then Chris would mix it. And at that point, that was a longer process because he also brought in a string arranger and a sax player. Uh, he would think about the songs deeply and go back into them and mix and remix. He did several mixes of the album before he had something that he was happy with. And, you know, me, it's good to not listen to me because I'll say, it sounds great. Let's go. And he was like, just, just, just a second, you know, and he would think about separation and, and dynamic way more than I would, because I'm just an impatient singer. It sounds like apart from, so Dave Egger is the cellist. Is that right? Yeah. Apart from him, all the little keyboard parts, is that all you, this percussion bed? That's me and me and Chris. Okay. So yeah. Can you say a little about how that, because right from the very beginning that you've got this really interesting drum texture and a very, you know, with this far in the right speaker kettle drum that comes in a while or, you know, synth kettle drum, something. Right. And that very percussive bass sound. Yeah. Can you say a little about sort of how that just initial, this is the sound of the track came together. That wasn't the first song I wrote, but I work in Logic and I love the orchestral sounds. I love the kettle drums and stuff. The way I make records is I just put sounds on that I think are great, <laughs> you know, and I also... To me, the song is in a 3-4 time. It has a very Cocteau Twins kind of rhythm to it. So I played the bass like Simon Raymond might play the bass in the Cocteau Twins. And I honestly, Chris replayed quite a lot of the bass that I played on the record, but I don't know which okay. ones. And I, often I will go to him and say, wow, who played bass on this track? Did you? And he'd say, he'll say, no, it was you. And I said, really? I it was you digitally manipulated beyond, <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> well, I can't remember half the stuff I do when I'm making records. Whatever, the end result is, is pleasing. And, you know. So yeah, the recording process for me is almost the same as the writing process. It's just almost a blackout. I just get so focused in and I leave poor Chris to start out the mess later. Let me play the one, one little place, uh, 205. Be your grace, George. Just lead me to your land. So just that transition that's going to go into this. I was thinking like a summer place, you know, that logic orchestral high thing that you're talking about. Yeah. 
Okay, I mean, because that's that's got multiple. It's not just a string section. It's about three different things that are serving the function of strings. The high summer place violins, you know, doo, 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 that gives the whole thing a very romantic, old school feel. But the, also these the synth pad and the very acoustic cello, which sounds like it shouldn't blend as well as it does with the synth pad. But yet yeah, all three of those things work really well together. Right. And there's one thing I do remember is that I really got into... Before I wrote it, when we're in lockdown, I was messing around a lot with Logic and I got really into working on doing my own string arrangements and very inspired by Wally Stott, who did the Scott Walker records in the 60s. So you'd have an almost atonal crossover between, but it became this really sweet, sugary waterfall after a while. I love that kind of stuff. I love the easy listening music that was on the radio when I grew up, like in the 60s, Radio 2 and things like that. It was on every kind of middle of the road record, you know, I love that stuff. Well, and that's nice that you're doing this historical period piece that it makes it even more not that you're keeping to the musician <laughs> you wouldn't be using string synth pads at all if you're like trying to actually make it sound from that era exactly but yeah. suggested yeah and then just that lead electric piano line that is kind of the, the thing was that the core of the song was that the thing that came first or was it a strumming acoustic thing no it's a guitar that piano was definitely chris everything for me starts with guitar it's funny because that song Actually, I worked the longest at because I was trying to get a feeling and I couldn't find the feeling. It started off really fast, almost way more strummy, folky. But then I realized what I wanted to do with the Phantom Marriage was make it both funereal and celebratory as well. So it was like a wedding celebration and a funeral march, doom, like a dirge. And I wanted to find that spot. You know, I had to invent that spot where that motion happened and that happened when I was playing guitar one two three four and then I had a sort of boom clap so it was like clapping celebration but clapping digging a grave you know it kind of surprised me so you know when you have a linear narrative you don't need repeating sections necessarily right it could just keep going on as long as it's in a similar pattern but you've got things like what I'm calling the b section which let me actually just play a little bit of you doing it early and then Monica doing it later with totally different melodies, of course. So this is about 119 where you come in. How happy I made her But it wasn't supposed to be This tortured love is a question mark And then let me figure out where she... So they're not totally unrelated. It's not talk singing, but it's singing in mostly one pitch. <laughs> You're still really focusing on the lyrics, even though you get the advantage. I think of that as a technique from opera. I don't know. It definitely has a musical theater connotation to me. I'd say that this song is where she really played around with it because I noticed when I was writing, one of the things you have to be aware of when you're writing something like this is that you have to say a certain amount of words in a certain musical phrase because you're trying to get a point across before the next chorus happens. 
And her bit there is just that. And I'd sung it in a certain way. And it was one of these things where it sounded great, but I would never be able to sing it that way again. So I just said, here, Monica, just do this. And she came up with a really great way of doing it. And she played with the melody to make it work as well. But also, you're right, it's conversation as well. There's the two of us. There's that song and there's the Lowland Fulcrum where they first meet, where it's a back and forth conversation in a sense. So I wanted it to be like a song, but I also wanted it to be conversational. I don't know that I was focusing on, you know, it's a long album. I only got through it about a time and a half or twice before I, (laughs) but I didn't seem like you actually harmonized the two of you anywhere on it. Am I wrong about that? She harmonizes with me on uh, maybe, yeah, I can't remember. You know, it's I haven't listened to it properly for a long time. But I guess being in different countries is I, part of the explanation for, for even if you were having two characters having a conversation, like the obvious duet thing. Well, in all fairness, I hate uh, okay. musicals. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, don't, I didn't want every conversation to resolve itself, but like... <laughs> La La Land or something like that. It was like, but I still love you. You know, it wasn't that kind of thing. And I, I really wanted to steer because when I started writing it, people were saying, is it a musical? I'm like, Ugh. no, it's not. I call it a song cycle like Lou Reed's Berlin, except there's more than one singer on it through necessity, really, because of the story. But yeah, I didn't even think about that kind of thing. If it happened, it happened. That's great. But it didn't. And it's fine. Before we get to the next song, let's stop and pay the bills. HelloFresh is a service that gives you fresh, pre-measured ingredients, mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. It lets you skip those trips to the grocery store. It makes home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. Now, you're probably familiar with the whole meal kit idea. I've found it's a wonderful way to cook fancy things that there's no way that I would search the recipes out of my own. And they have a lot of options that are like specifically vegetarian or low-calorie, family-friendly. Much better than making mac and cheese out of a box, putting a frozen pizza in the oven. What you might not have known is that this is not only a better result and a better experience, frankly, than box meals and scrounging. But even if you are the type to aggressively find good recipes, go to the grocery store, buy those ingredients, have them on hand when you want them, HelloFresh is 28% cheaper than shopping at your local grocery store. And of course, it's more convenient. You get to enjoy cooking, get dinner on the table in 30 minutes or less, and maybe you don't want to cook. They actually also have quick and easy meals, 15 to 20 minute dinners, breakfast on the go, 10 minute lunches, and of course, their gourmet recipes, for instance, a balsamic fig sirloin, are over 72% cheaper than the average restaurant meal, according to a Zagat's dining survey. Another reason to choose them is that HelloFresh gives back. They've already donated over 4 million meals to charity in 2020 and now are stepping up food donations to local communities amid food insecurity crisis and the pandemic. Go to HelloFresh.com slash examined14 and use the code examined14 for up to 14 free meals including free shipping. It's HelloFresh.com slash examined14. Use the code examined14. That'll get you up to 14 free meals and free shipping. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. And our favorite long-running sponsor, Masterclass, offering over 100 classes from a range of world-class instructors. That thing you've always wanted to do is closer than you think. You will no doubt, being listeners to this podcast, come to Masterclass for the dozen or so music classes by folks like Carlos Santana, Usher, 
St. Vincent, Alicia Keys, Herbie Hancock, Dead Mouse, Danny Elfman, Questlove, etc. But while you're there, with your annual all-access pass, you will no doubt want to dip into Neil deGrasse Tyson about science and tech, David Sedaris on storytelling and humor, Chandra Rhymes on writing for TV, Spike Lee, Samuel L. Jackson, Natalie Portman, Steve Martin, David Lynch, Malcolm Gladwell, Dan Brown, Neil Gaiman, R.L. Stein, Margaret Atwood, Joyce Carol Oates. Oh my God, I could just keep listing them. They are cinema quality, but you don't have to do the video. You could just take them like podcasts, do the audio, listen at a fast speed, make them fit in your life, or just completely immerse yourself. Use the supplemental course materials. Use the community aspect to have conversations with other people who are experiencing the same class. And... Here's something to keep in mind as the world breaks down. Wilderness Survival with Jesse Krebs, the latest class. That tells you how to use knives and rope, how to signal people when you're lost in the wilderness, how to use a map and compass so you don't get lost in the wilderness, how to forage for food, gather fuel, use herbs and things in the wilderness to patch up your boo-boos. This is not something I would have sought out, but having a Masterclass subscription... Why would I not take advantage of this? I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass. As a nakedly examined music listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash examined. That's masterclass.com slash examined for 15% off masterclass. Well, let's get the second song out there. The title track from Bloodhounds 2018. This is a few albums ago already because you put them out at such a, a rapid rate. But I see this is also a Chris Bruce production certain interesting commonalities in how the thing is structured. Do you want to say a little about it before we hear it? Oh, Bloodhounds was written after I'd suffered a really bad panic attack. The result of that panic attack was I went down to my studio and it just poured out of me really, really quickly.
Yeah, so this one really has the big Bowie slash Roxy music. I always think Roxy music when the bass is that prominent, this big trudging party atmosphere, especially right at the beginning. It's so thick, like that you put in just loads of cymbals and this synth patch, which seems only designed just to fill up space. You know, yeah, uh, there's tons. I played so much keyboard on that song. Yeah, I just I was thinking about the Stranglers quite a bit like the album The Raven where they started to really use synths a lot more than they had in the past. It really drove the song. I wanted that song to move at a fair clip. You know, I wanted it to move really fast and I wanted it to be commanding, I suppose, for want of a better word. And you've got some nice little thicknesses in some of the chords, which I don't know if it would even come out at all if you were just doing them on acoustic because the acoustic becomes such a percussion thing, but then you have this nice, yeah. well, let's add electric, but mostly just as a strum, just so you can hear what the whole chord is, or you know, an in, a thing to introduce as we're entering a new section. It sounds like you really think in terms of layering that way, more as a fellow singer-songwriter who dabbles in a lot of instruments <laughs> in a studio that you can like, let's just introduce a new color here rather than my fancy solo. Like it's got to be a definite riff or a definite new sound. Yeah, a lot of that reason is because I do my records at home and I have that luxury. Whereas I grew up in an era where when I was a kid and we'd go into the studio, we needed to know what we were doing before we went in because it cost so much money. And we had to have a clear idea of what we were doing. And now I can do this stuff at home and no one can tell me what I can or can't do or what I can or can't afford. So I can think a lot more about dynamic within the song, about sounds to add or take away. It's given me a lot of freedom. Well, and a very interesting structure here. I mean, the whole song is over five minutes, so you have a lot of room that it's, what, four verses in a row? And then we've got this just long instrumental section lasting, I think, more than two minutes where you're just introducing, here's a lead synth line, here's, now we'll stop our harmonica solo, now we'll have an electric piano take a riff. Yeah, yeah can you say something that's really just interesting, like almost like you were thinking about, I'm just going to write an instrumental, but let's pour it in the middle of this other thing. I really like messing with arrangements. Like if you took the birthday poems, you'll notice that there's certain songs that have six measures per verse, and then five measures per the next verse, and stuff like that. And I don't do it deliberately. It's just what the song needs at that time. I work in service of the song and whatever I intuitively think has to happen. And I don't know where that comes from. But to me, in the song Bloodhounds, it's a tension thing. It's a build. So it had to be that long. And that felt right before it resolves itself and becomes the end of the song. I've always done that because... Occasionally, I will sit down and write something that's very formulaic in terms of the mathematics of a song. There's a verse, there's a chorus, there's a bridge, blah, blah, blah. But I do tend to go off the beaten path most of the time because it's fun and it's what my gut tells me to do. Well, you know, and I I misspoke that instrumental section does have some lyrics conveniently missing from what you sent me. Come on, kitty, kitty, let's move away from the bloodhounds. Come on, come on, clap, clap. Uh, almost like you didn't want to type that as part of that's. <laughs> I forgot, I forgot that it was in there. But these are backing vocals, they don't count. Because <laughs> that seems like the kind of thing that would be in an outro, or at least would recur in the outro. But 
the fact that you've had the instrumental go on as long as you have here, like, well, it's sort of like we're at the, you get the feel of being in the outro, but we still come back in with, you know, another set of four verses before actually wrapping it up. Right, right. Let me just play a couple of the patches here. So this lead synth thing, about 120, the first part of the instrumental. Did you play the two keyboards parts separately or is it, I've programmed in one thing, let me add another sound that's attached to that same MIDI object or... Well, that was all my card. That was this thing over here. Oh, you can't see it. <laughs> anyway, I have a micro card and augmented with some synth sounds of, of logic. Yeah. Okay. So once you just play it in there, then it can convert the audio to MIDI or whatever, and then layer another sound using the same trigger. Or did you just replay it? That is my question. I played the melody, then I played a counter melody, and then another melody. And then with Logic, I have another keyboard over here that triggers sounds. Should okay, I so them. easy enough to do it just by playing it multiple times. And then later that you've got a guitar layering on top of that, that we're going to hit you with one riff. But again, kind of like that string thing I was talking about before, that I want a string part to come in. But instead of one string part, it's going to be three different string parts. <laughs> Well, here it's, I want the one melody, but let's layer the the crap out of it and just have some different colors. I don't know, do you end up having to play with that stuff or do you rely on Chris or whoever's mixing it to fix any sonic issues between the different sounds that like, you know, that one is blocking out the other. You got to seriously re-EQ it. Yeah, he'll do that for me. But, you know, to me, a lot of this is because I'm still, I feel like I'm still learning so much. And having these tools available to me is a really great and easy way to teach myself about harmony. Like earlier on, I was talking to you about coming up with these string arrangements. It's a lot about playing something, harmonizing with it, and maybe doing it in a slightly different tempo or something like that and seeing how they move together. This is all stuff that I am so privileged to be able to sit down here and (laughs) just learn by myself. It's so great. (laughs) Well, let me play another little clip from that. 209, where this electric piano thing comes in. Which, not only that main riff that you're hearing, but there's also some weird, like, warbling percussion, some stuff that you put underneath that that's sort of barely audible, which that sound does not come from the same land as this big, what I was calling the Roxy music fiesta, you know, that opened this, this wall of sound. It's like, we're really yeah, just making this a more quirky minimalist thing for this part. I guess if you're going to have an instrumental this long, it better have some movement rather than just repeat. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I was sort of like in my mind and I get these images in my mind. I was like, when the electric piano happened, I was like, let's take these guys to the disco. Okay. And I just sort of saw a dance floor And for some reason, I was thinking of Chinatown with Jack Nicholson. I don't know why. That's where the kitty kitty comes from. And it was just kind of sleazy 70s sounding to me. This is not new. This is something like since my the dawn of time for me in the studio, sort of trying to present an era into a song. And it's your twisted version of it. So no one ever gets it. But it makes you laugh when you do it. Having that instrumentally and then i wrote for the next one add magical synth this is 240 <laughs> just to add it up 
Is that one of the presets of like, ooh, I got to use that somewhere to have it? <laughs> oh, gosh, in Logic, they have these great sequence sounds. I was thinking of uh, these sounds always remind me of uh, later Walker Brothers records like Night Flights and things like that, having a high synth above the melody brings a certain tension to it. And it's something that I've done since the ministry days. We've always used that idea, which I think we kind of adopted from Killing Joke, using a high high synth to add tension to, like follow the leaders. Well, yeah, if you're going to have such an industrial floor, yeah. bam, bam, that like, please put something that is moving on top. Exactly, Just exactly. <laughs> Otherwise, even though this progression through all this instrumental is very carefully... Like, I want to have a new turn every few lines. A lot of your other stuff seems like you do lean heavily into the drone. I'm going to put you in a trance. I'm going to be pretty minimalist and actually let this repeat quite a long time. Those are some of the albums I found a little harder to listen to than others. (laughs) I think intentionally so. So it's just a matter of sort of what drug you're injecting into the listener in that particular tune. Is that? (laughs) I suppose so, yeah. Like I said, the song tells me what to do um, Mm -hmm. rather than the other way around. And I never set out, with the exception of the birthday parties, I never set out with a concept for making a record. Something will happen. And generally, sort of the first song that I write for an album will end up either not being used or it will be reworked so much at the end it becomes something else. But that's a sort of like a time of understanding where you want to go, what you have, what excites you. I mean, I can't tell you how excited I get when I'm doing this, when I'm in the moment and writing. It get really jittery and I feel really, really good. But like I say, I serve the song and I just let it take over so that I just use my hands to do it, really. So in terms of the brain part that comes up, you said this started with the lyrics. Is it all intuitive at this point? You said it was about a panic attack, but and you were wrong. And because we found the forest gone, it sounds like you're putting in a little bit of social commentary or generalizing once you've got this idea out of the sort of hounds of hell that could jump up and pursue you at any point of pointing out not just personally but even socially like the sources of potential guilt that could bring this into being it's about trying to find your comfort zone which i couldn't and being in a place up here that was alien to me although i was in surroundings that that felt familiar to me i mean i think it's a feeling that many many people feel And it's a feeling that people feel more and more these days. Although it's a personal song, I think people can relate to it. So yeah, that's exactly where I was coming from. I know it can get kind of pedantic to get into the details of your imagery choices. But so in the second half of the song, the bloodhounds are down here. And then there's all this stuff in the sky that the sky is the crossfire, which can't touch the bloodhounds. But the sky is filled with blood beside the bloodhounds. What did you have in mind just in terms of having that distinction there? It's the same thing. It's not being able to, at best, not being comfortable. At worst, not feeling that anywhere in your sphere right now is safe. None of the signals are safe. None of the things you are doing are safe. The forest imagery is very much, you know, you can walk through the forest, but you don't know it's too dark to see anything. It's not like a wall. Okay, so it's not the Sneetches, we've burned down the forest. It is a lost in the forest. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) So this one, I mean, were there any rewriting on the lyrics, can you recall? Or or is this just, I would think, obviously, with the narrative, you know, that that was just a whole different effort in terms of the amount of time that you would be 
rethinking and sculpting, you know, much more uh, craftsmanly. But is that the case with some of your other lyrics or are, are most of them, as you were saying, from the gut, just emotional explosions? Being as prolific as you are, I'm guessing that it's more not rethinking things 20 times. Oh, yeah. No, I don't rethink things. I think it really annoys a lot of my collaborators as well. I go with what's there and what comes out. But, you know, there are times, I mean, believe me, there are some songs that I've written that I have reworked and reworked and reworked. I'd say about maybe 5% of what I write, I've taken and understood that there's something here. Sometimes you just have to sit with it and it'll happen. You know, I imagine painters have that as well. You just, or writers or whatever, you know, you have something, you know, it's good, but you don't exactly know what shape it's supposed to be. But for the most part, the song Bloodhounds is a great example. It just came out and bam, that was it. No rewrites, nothing. And also your choice of when you put harmonies on, like I noticed you're not a super stickler for, I must line up the harmonies exactly. Like I would think that's the kind of thing digitally working that like, well, let's just fix them all. But you're pretty free about the lower note starts a little later than the others. And, you know, it's just you hear it all. That's something I definitely copped from David Bowie. I mean, you listen to Heroes, that album, like they're all over the place. There are scary monsters. There are so many what some people might call mistakes, but they're just, they're beautiful to me. They sound really good. And I, I like sloppy in that respect. I don't like sloppy in my life, but uh, in terms of backing vocals, I think they're great. <laughs> Not all of your stuff is in the, like the Bowie voice, but this song and quite a few of the others, like just because if it's a heavy vibrato, it's what is your sort of connection and comfort level with, that's okay if you want to compare me to that or no, I'm my own thing. Stop. I'm, it's, it's fine <laughs> by me. You know, what I do is fairly public and, and, you know, if people are listening to it and having an opinion, then to me, that's just wonderful. My voice is kind of shaped like that. I don't think I sound particularly like Bowie, but there's definite similarities. And I think we have a similar timbre and that's totally fine by me. Well, and almost more in the harmony parts, like you were talking about in the, those scary monsters, just the way the layers sound to you. Bowie's records are where I learned about backing vocals. You know, Bowie's records and Eno's records. And it's just stuck with me. I like the way they do them and they're important. They can really make a song. Well, let's take a quick jump back to the way you used to do things. You you chose Detestimony from Finney Tribe from the Let the Tribe Grow EP 1986. It is uh, released on your CC Outtakes, Rarities and Personal Favorites, 1982 to 2002. Can you say a little about this before we hear this? This was is actually part of a much longer piece of music that we wrote for a performance we were doing in 1980. We started in 19, it was probably in 1985. At that time, we had just recently bought our first sampler, and it really changed the way we approached music. It was a Mirage sampler. I don't even know if they make them anymore. Probably not. We're talking, it's almost, it's like 35, 36 years old. It took a diskette, and we could sample sounds. And so the, the church bells in there, we got a very tiny quarter-inch reel of, of church bells from one of the band's uh, roommates. And we sampled the church bell and came up with this melody. It's funny, it became far greater than we could ever imagine. It became quite a hit a few times over, long after I'd left the band, I might add. <laughs> but it did. And it always stuck with me because to me, that was the beginning of us getting 
like really into technology, if you like. That's exactly what we were doing at the time. We'd been very organic before as a band and bringing the technology into the band. It was what a lot of bands were doing at the time in the mid 80s, but it was a really, it was an exciting and a frustrating time. And it was quite divisive as well in certain ways.
there was a version of this band. I mean, I hear a bass line on here, but other than that, it sounds entirely just programming and you singing, or maybe with some of that Latin percussion played. No, everything, everything in that track is live. Even the, the drum machine is played on the drum machine with your fingers or something? What? There's tape edits, uh, okay. for sure, but we used to play that song live, and by the time we recorded in the studio, we'd already played it live quite a few times. We would rehearse like crazy, like starting at 10 in the morning till six at night. We would just go over and over and over again. So we're super tight. But all the percussion, everything is live. How many people even were in the band during this? Six. It sounds very choreographed for six people. Was it one or two people kind of taking the lead of, okay, let's have stuff come in here and do even remember at this point? I I totally remember because it was a very, it's one of the reasons I chose this because it was a very formative method of composition that I think I actually came up with for us. What I wanted to do, and I, like I said, it was from a larger piece. What I did was got a great big piece of paper and draw lines on it. And we weren't writing music at all, but I would write arrangements and dynamics. Now, in those days, it was analog. So, there, of course, we overdubbed some stuff as well, but the band was basically playing live. We overdubbed the percussion afterwards. And one of the other things we did was we would be 12 hands on the mixing desk and we would rehearse the mix. And this is what everyone did. This is not something we invented. This is every... every I did this with a four track with multiple people. <laughs> With a little cassette four track. We would rehearse this mix and we did it for all our Finney Tribes. And that we knew where the uh, faders were and where the uh, cutout, you know, buttons were. And like, okay, no bass for four bars, go. And we'd rehearse it. And then when we thought we had it, we would do it. And then we'd bounce it down. And that's how we made records. And it was the only way we knew how to make records, you know. But the point being, I think, in a way, is that at that time, you have to remember was, you know, and ministry is guilty of this, too. Every other sort of successful band in the world who was in the studios dealing with technology were taking like four weeks to get a bass drum sound. And we were like, we were shitting ourselves like, what are we going to do? Our bass drum doesn't sound good unless we've spent four weeks on it. The 80s were so weird when all that technology was introduced. We were suddenly like told in a sense that you can't make records the way we used to, but we didn't know how to make them another way. And we also didn't have the money to do it. So we said, no, we're going to do it this way. It's the only way we knew how. And we'd hear these horror stories like the Human League making the follow up to Dare and just like, boom, boom. Boom, for weeks at a time, you know, it just sounded miserable. <laughs> As opposed to now, send it out to the guy who's going to mix it and he'll make the, the bass drum sound good. Right. Well, exactly. And I mean, I remember when I first came to America, maybe a couple of years after, like you would buy sort of Bob Ludwig CDs for tons of money. You know, I'm saying it was CDs of bass drums, like Ministry had a double CD of bass, and it would cost so much money. Being in Ministry when you're doing drum sounds is just, it's a new circle of hell. It's horrible. It was so boring. (laughs) You were thickly involved enough in that band, like this band. I I was wondering how much of a jump it was from Finney Tribe to these other projects where maybe 
they brought you in at the end to sing your part and that was more of it rather than this one that you were architecting from the beginning. Uh, yeah, no, it was different. And it took me a bit of getting used to, I mean, I've hang around in the studio with ministry, but I realized quite soon that I was working with two producers with Paul and Al. And I realized, well, this is a good way to do it. With Finney Tribe, it was six people and it was an absolute democracy. And that was an absolute nightmare sometimes. It's much better for me to be in a situation with that where someone else is calling the shots and I am called in to do vocals and they are going to be here and they are going to sound like that. I felt like part of the gang, but I didn't want to inflict my naive ideas about the studio and these guys who'd been making these like crazy noisy records for years. There does seem something in common, even if it's these songs between Finney Tribe and Ministry are put together differently or you're playing a different role, but the role of the vocal on a industrial or, you know, whether it's more on the techno side or more on the grindy guitar side, it seems like it has to be some sort of apocalyptic sermon. Yeah. As opposed to your later from the the heart uh, yeah can you say like in this i mean you've got the fire was divine and the, the purging oh my god and the, the, it's so pretentious <laughs> jesus christ well you know burning as one uh, yeah it was very much uh at that time you know it was very misanthropic and human beings are you know a parasite on the planet blah 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 and you know i was a kid i was just shooting my mouth off i was learning how to write but yeah, when I was typing up these lyrics for you the other day, I was like, thinking, well, can I change my mind? This is awful. <laughs> well, and in this song, you can actually hear yeah, that. I know. Because it like, really becomes through. Whereas in some of the later stuff, I find it in an industrial band, that, especially when that's very guitar heavy or just mixes it so it really is a wall of sound or the, you know puts distortion on the vocals or something, that sonically it doesn't even matter. I mean, of course, I've, I've thought this way until I was playing in an acoustic band more recently. Whenever I was playing an electric band live, like, nobody's going to hear the lyrics. Yeah. Why are you focusing so much on the lyrics? Why do you spend so much time on the damn lyrics when no one cares? And I would think especially an industrial band, that would be so much worse. Or Did you feel like there was also, I mean, you said you were brought in to help with lyrics. Like, he obviously, Al thought that he needed someone to polish these things to make the sermons, the mantras more robust, whereas it doesn't seem called for in the actual sonic experience. I don't know. Al has his topics that he would sing about, and they're generally political. You know, I mean, we're cut from the same cloth in many ways. They're protesting, and he would say, I really want to sing about this topic or whatever, and I would sit down and we'd talk about it and try to put it into a song. You're right. Maybe some people didn't hear it, but at the same time, you know, he's very careful about what he does and he cares about what he's saying. And then, you know, I always got the impression that he was a little bit shy of his own voice. And that's why he was one of the first people to start throwing harmonizers and stuff on his voice. But, you know, at the same time, when I wrote D-Testimony, there was stuff coming out that I just loved, like Halber Mensch by Einsturzend der Neubatten, which the German songs, like, that packed a punch to me. I didn't understand a word. He could have been screaming the grocery list. But it still had hit me on an emotional level. So I think for an audience, it can work on that level. Well, and this is all in the era before the Cookie Monster vocal, as I refer to the <laughs> modern... Uh... We'll just do that in our in our delivery rather than in an effect added. <laughs> exactly. 
So what is the the role? I mean, with your solo career still being, you know, very sonically varied, but firmly in the acoustic guitar singer songwriter thing, even if you end up putting a lot of layers on top of that, I know that you've done some reunion stuff with the Revolting Cox and you've got subsequent the damage manual. I mean, that's 20 years ago now, but that's still some of those same folks up until uh, doing more like your role in the stuff that on which you became famous of. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I saw you've got seven releases with cocksure. Yeah. I guess I wanted to leave folks with one example since this is right up until 2020 operation cocksure. God <laughs> gets religion is the song I picked. Can you say a little about that as an instance of at least how the industrial thing remains within your working life? I'm growing a little bit weary of looking backwards and doing nostalgia stuff. Cocksure is a way of going forward. And I use the example of the writer Martin Amos a lot, being a writer who's written some really introspective books and some just like balls out really ridiculous stories. And I like to think of myself that way. Cocksure is like my National Enquirer. And it's fun. And I don't know if I'll ever do it again. Who knows? I don't know. I don't count on anything, but it's sure fun when I do it. And the guy I do it with, Jason's a really close friend, and we have a nice time. And does Jason just deliver the instruments complete to you, and then you're just adding vocals? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just really showing you that you can be a standalone vocalist still and come up with fun things to to sing about. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Here is God Gets Religion.
Thanks so much to Chris. Remember, you can read about all his many, many projects at chrisconnolly.com. He's also done many guest appearances with KMFDM, Plague Bringer, Chainsuck, Ahab Rex, Nacht Mysticum, Human Greed, and of course, among his solo work are many styles we did not represent. He actually has quite a few albums that are just him playing acoustic guitar and singing, which of course I found the most surprising coming out of this industrial thing, especially because a lot of his stuff is sort of in the Bauhaus, Bowie, Peter Murphy sort of realm of kind of theatrical, electronics-heavy dance music. And you can specifically learn about his most recent album at thebirthdaypoems.com. I will, as usual, post some links to some videos of him working with his various projects, some of the things not represented here, at the blog post associated with this at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I hope that if you are listening to this on the Partially Examined Life feed, you will subscribe directly to Nakedly Examined Music, where you will get the episodes promptly, and you'll have all of them laid there before you. You can do that, of course, with the podcast app of your choice, but and the links to those various destinations are all at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. I must, as usual, tell you about uh, supporting the podcast, which you may do to avoid hearing me read any more ads. And there are two ways to do this. One is through patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic, which will also get you my show notes, right? The actual lyrics, the things that I picked out in the arrangements, lots more than were actually voiced here. Or to just get the ad-free feed, some bonus stuff, and actually this is a ticket to similar access to my Pretty Much Pop and Philosophy versus Improv podcasts. Straight through the Apple Podcasts app, there should now be a button right there on the show page that says sign up to the Mark Lintertainment Network. So for a small fee, and whenever you update any of those three podcasts, you'll get the ad-free versions and just full access to everything I have made related to those three podcasts. So I know many of you support the Partially Examined Life, and Partially Examined Life funds have been essential to get these podcasts off the ground and cover overhead, but I need more direct support to continue making all the various things that I do. So please consider that. Finally, I would love you to leave a rating or review of this podcast on the platform of your choice. And please share these episodes with interested parties. This is a wonderful way to introduce people in your life to new musicians. Until next time, keep on musicking. This is Mark Vincent Meyer signing off. <laughs>